I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the choicest cuts from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on the menu this week, there's the glorious gluttony of competitive eating, the robot stingray with real muscle and the Khans who rule Bollywood. But first, the Italian job was our cover line this week, looking at the looming banking crisis in Europe's boot-shaped nation. It's been hard for commentators to look beyond Brexit on questions of economic woe at the moment. But as our leader argued, this financial mess has been brewing for much longer. Italy is Europe's fourth biggest economy and one of its weakest. Public debt stands at 135% of GDP. The adult employment rate is lower than in any EU country bar Greece. The economy has been moribund for years, suffocated by over-regulation and feeble productivity. Amid stagnation and deflation, Italy's banks are in deep trouble, burdened by some 360 billion euros, that's $400 billion of souring loans, the equivalent of a fifth of the country's GDP. At best, Italy's weak banks will throttle the country's growth. At worst, some will go bust. And sadly, there's no pain-free solution. Italy urgently needs a big, bold bank clean-up. The problem is that this is politically all but impossible. Theoretically, the bail-in arrangements that could rescue the banks could be applied firmly. However, forcing ordinary Italians to take losses again would badly damage Matteo Renzi, the Prime Minister, dashing his hope of winning a referendum on constitutional reform in the autumn. Mr Renzi wants the rules to be applied flexibly. On the other hand, the rescue can't be accomplished without Angela Merkel, and that's not without problems. Just as Mr Renzi has a lot to gain from watering down or suspending the rules, clemency may have a political cost in Germany, where elections are due to be held next year. But without some action, the long-term political consequences could be dire. If the bail-in rules are applied rigidly in Italy, the outcry from savers will both damage confidence and leave the door to power open for the Five Star Movement, a grouping that blames Italy's economic troubles on the single currency. A compromise of some kind, we reckoned, is likely. And our leader finishes by urging that Europe should learn from Britain's mistakes. One lesson of Brexit is that glossing over the concerns of voters is not a sustainable strategy. So for Italy, it seems the road ahead is a little more spaghetti junction than superhighway. But our next turn takes us to the Americas section, after which we might all be feeling a little full. A century ago, on the corner of Surf and Stillwell Avenues, outside Nathan's famous hot dog stall, four immigrants challenged each other to a hot dog eating contest to prove who was the most patriotic. Jim Mullen from Ireland 
gulped down 13 dogs and buns in 12 minutes. Competitive eating has only grown since then. For its thousands of spectators, it's serious business. George Shea, the event's loquacious master of ceremonies and head of major league eating, explained that this was more than sport. Competitive eating, he said, is the battleground upon which God and Lucifer wage war for men's souls. And Shea's contest has captured patriotic fervour. Last year, Joey Jaws Chestnut, an eight-time champion, was knocked off the top of the food chain by Matt Megatoad Stoney. The boisterous crowd, many wearing foam hot dog hats and waving American flags, chanted Brooklyn and USA as they watched him attempt to take back the coveted mustard belt. But this year, Chestnut turned the tables. He took back the mustard belt by wolfing down 70 dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Mr Shea summed up his achievement thus. He is American exceptionalism. He is America itself. Well, unlike 70 hot dogs, our tasting menu is best consumed at its own pace as we continue to our Asia section, where an article delved into the eccentricities of the Bollywood calendar. As night follows day and Eid al-Fitr follows Ramadan, so there is another certainty for India's Muslims marking the end of the month of fasting, the release of an action-drama extravaganza starring Salman Khan, one of the country's most bankable stars. Salman, immensely popular among Indian Muslims, is part of a select royalty in Bollywood film. He represents one of Bollywood's triumvirate of stars, all called Khan, unrelated to each other. Each dominates a different annual holiday. Shah Rukh Khan, a favourite of the middle classes, is the hero of the Diwali weekend. Amir Khan, more highbrow, dominates Christmas. In the digital age, a successful launch date is more important than ever for Bollywood filmmakers. Holidays have always been popular release dates for Hindi movies. Children are out of school and purse strings are loosened. But other factors are encouraging blockbuster weekends. One is that digital piracy makes it vital for films to maximise box office revenues before they are leaked online. Nevertheless, not all the calendar decisions are quite so rational. Bollywood's producers still rely on superstition to find success. Lucky stars are cast in guest roles. No big films are released in the first fortnight of the year. That is considered bad luck even with a Khan topping the bill. And it's time to move from yes we can to let's hope we don't, as we turn to the business section, where our Schumpeter column explored a Trump-shaped wedge dividing American business. The leaders of America's multinational firms are usually a picture of self-control, with sincere handshakes, grown-up hair and scripted sound bites. But ask them about the election and emotion takes over. At a drinks party in Manhattan... A megabank's boss froths that Donald Trump is a madman. But outside America's booming multinationals, there's a different story. A thousand miles south of Manhattan, in suburban Florida, the mood is different. The boss of a construction firm says he is fed up. The construction boss is not alone. Opinion polls suggest that Mr Trump is also popular with small business owners. The Schumpeter column argued against dismissing this feeling out of hand. The complacent response is that these entrepreneurs are fools who have been deceived. But Mr Trump speaks the language of business owners when he says he will abolish Obamacare. 
the health care scheme that companies say has created piles of red tape. When he promises that no firm will pay a tax rate of more than 15%, small and domestically focused business see not a fiscal absurdity, but a chance that they might enjoy the same treatment that multinationals already enjoy. Apple, America's biggest firm, paid a cash tax rate of 18% in 2015. The conclusion? American corporate culture is a more complex and nuanced weft than many imagine. A sensible economic agenda for America would please and annoy both sides of the divide. It would pursue free trade but also attack oligopolies, lobbying and bureaucracy, and reform the corporate tax system. In other words, it would listen to the polished sophisticates who run America's biggest companies, but also to those business leaders who support Mr Trump. Of course, whether Trump would listen to either remains moot, to say the least. But it's time to move from flawed candidates to flawed elections now, as we take a peek into the finance section, where our free exchange column applied some economic thinking to the vagaries of voting. The voters have spoken, runs an old gag. But what on earth did they mean? In the wake of Britain's vote to leave the European Union, bereft Remain campaigners have sought to explain away the result. The outcome, the revanchists insist, was not an accurate reflection of voters' desires, but an electoral malfunction. To most, that sounds like sour grapes. But there is a body of academic work that supports the idea that elections often misfire. Our article argues that caprice, ignorance and poorly designed voting systems can all undermine the ability of elections to accurately reflect the interests of voters. And that can be true even when things are made easier. In principle, referendums are simpler. British voters were given a straight choice between leaving the EU and remaining. There was no complicated menu of options. In effect, half-in and out votes were lumped together. The result may well have been different had they been separated. Our article argued that these flaws in elections underpin the logic of representative democracy. Indeed, representative democracy is predicated on the idea that many have neither the time nor the inclination to wrestle with the details of policymaking. In the 20th century, Joseph Schumpeter argued, more bluntly, that policy should be left to those with the time and skill to get it right. The role of voters is to throw the rascals out if they sense things are going wrong. Nevertheless, the column concludes, we shouldn't ignore the possibility that Schumpeter would have seen exactly this in the EU referendum. He might well have interpreted the outcome as an angry public, sensing that something had gone wrong, giving the elites a good kicking. Just what voting is for. Well, British voters have shown they can give elites a good kicking, but as we look towards our science section, we might be able to discover more sophisticated ways of tormenting them, perhaps with robotic assistance. Looking to the natural world for engineering inspiration is an idea at least as old as Leonardo da Vinci. Copying nature directly, though, has often proved hard. Nonetheless, a team of engineers at Harvard, led by Kit Parker, has done exactly that, in looking for more elegant ways to propel a robot through water. They have built a robotic stingray that imitates the motion of its biological counterpart. Moreover, it does so not with the electric circuits and servo motors of conventional robots, but with muscle cells engineered to mimic the elegant undulations of a living stingray. So-called soft robots like this one can involve borrowing biological material from unlikely sources. 
Dr Parker and his team chose rat mussels for their rays. They grew rat mussel cells in culture and then printed them onto sheets of elastomer that were to act as the surfaces of a robo-ray's wings. And the ocean's the limit for this rat-powered gadget. What use might be made of a more sophisticated version of such a robot remains to be seen. Dr Parker's design requires the fluid the bot swims through to contain the glucose that powers its muscles, reducing the bot's deployability. But a future version might be fitted with a glucose reservoir and a cardiovascular system to circulate that glucose. This would let it go anywhere which had enough oxygen in the water for the muscle cells to respire and would make it resemble a real animal even more closely than it does already. But if the idea of a self-sustaining robot stingray is a little too terrifying for you, you can always take refuge in our books and art section. They've popped along to the National Gallery in London, where a new exhibition is exploring the art owned by artists. The young Henri Matisse fell hard for Paul Cézanne's Three Bathers when he saw it in 1899 at the Gallery of Ambrose Vollard in Paris. He couldn't get the painting out of his mind. Several agonising weeks later, he and his wife agreed to pawn her emerald ring and buy it. This small and potent canvas, now owned by the city of Paris, is at the centre of an unusual summer show at London's National Gallery called Painter's Paintings. And the art is as revealing of the owner as the creator. Artists have always closely observed the work of fellow artists. Still, it is rare for museums to consider the extra level of identity a painting owned by another artist acquires, says Anne Robbins, the show's curator. The exhibition helps visualise the artist in the throes of inspiration. Painters' paintings also reveals an equally fascinating habit common to many artists, keeping special artworks close to hand. Treasured pieces function as prompts or inspirations. As models for composition and technique, they contribute to the development of an aesthetic theory and serve as yardsticks. Yes, I've heard that Damien Hirst keeps a deconstructed buttonwood column by his bed for inspiration too. Don't you, Damien? And if you're thirsting for inspiration or enlightenment, you can find all of our articles at economist.com. We've also pulled together a special Economist Asks show on the Chilcot Inquiry on Britain's decision to go to war in Iraq. So that was our tasting menu, and do send us your feedback via email, radio at economist.com, or via Twitter at Economist Radio. Here in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.